Well, it's the second Sunday of Advent, and we're reading this morning from two separate texts. I don't usually do that, but um, we're going to start in Malachi and then read a little bit from Malachi and Matthew. So Malachi 3, um, 18 through 4, 6. Hear the word of God. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble or straw. The day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, And in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear Good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Father, now we thank you for this, your word. Your word is truth. Sanctify us in it now. We pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that our hearts might be transformed through the hearing and preaching of the word. May it wash us and cleanse us by its truth and power, and may we glean its wisdom and leave this place differently than we came in. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, during our Advent candle lighting, I was worried for a moment. I was about to turn around and say, does anyone have a lighter? But during our Advent candle lighting, Herman and Kim read a prophecy from the book of Isaiah about a future time when God will bring about a transformation of the earth that extends even to the animal kingdom, a time in which the violence of predators will cease. It said, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and a child shall lead them. Now, scholars are actually somewhat mixed on the interpretation of that passage. 
Some see the prophecy in Edenic terms, Eden, hearkening back to the garden before death entered the world, an idyllic time in the earth before there were carnivores. The idea being that the rule and reign of the coming Messiah would revert the natural order, restoring peace among the earth's inhabitants. It certainly is a pleasant picture. You've probably seen images of that throughout the years, a wolf and a lamb lying down together, a portrait of what the coming age of the Messiah and the kingdom of God might look like. It's a pleasant picture. There's no doubt about it. Other interpreters, though, believe that it's not talking at all about the animal kingdom. The imagery is just a poetic way of addressing the fact that in Isaiah's time, Judah was like prey to the nations, Assyria and Babylon and Persia. They were like predators. And from this viewpoint, these predatory imperial powers that hunted down the people of God would one day come under the Messiah's sway and learn to be peaceable. And this might actually make more sense of the text since the whole context of Isaiah 11, which is where the passage that Kim and Herman read from, the whole chapter of Isaiah 11 is all about a future messianic age when nations will no longer hurt or destroy God's people. Now, Isaiah encapsulates this thought with the statement in Isaiah 11 and 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The age to come will end violence and animosity toward others. Predatory behavior, if you will, will cease. But that day has not come. The nightly news reminds us that there are still predators in our world. People who walk into bars and schools and do mass shootings. Evil actors on the world stage who blow up subway stations and buildings. And governments who oppress and torture their own citizens. Predators still roam our world today. Our human tendency, of course, is to divide divide up the world into good guys and bad guys. And of course, we always, always place ourselves on the side of the good guys. In the graphic Cormac McCarthy novel, The Road, a father and a son struggle to survive during a slow global apocalypse. Some sort of ecological disaster has killed and is killing all living organisms and there's no food. Food is scarce. The world is dying. And the population has dwindled, but there are a few people left. And these survivors, like the main characters of the book, this father and this son, son is about nine years old, and the book never gives their names. It's always the man and the boy, or the father and the son together, who are trying to survive. They're scavenging for food, trying to make it in a world that is dying. It's a very bleak picture. But there are also cannibals who pray. Because all the animals have died and all the green vegetation has disappeared, there are cannibals at that time in the world. The father and the son, who are nameless, have these ongoing conversations where the son asks the father, Dad, are we the good guys? What's remarkable about that is somehow, even after societal structures have disintegrated, 
and norms of morality have evaporated, there is still this need to know that we're on the side of right. There's a need to know that we're in the right. The father always answers his son's question, Dad, are we the good guys? With the answer, yes. But each time the boy sees his father do something that appears monstrous to him, like when one time his father kills a cannibal who would try to kidnap his son, his, father, his son asks, Dad, are we still the good guys? And his father, with a resounding, always says, Son, yes, we're the good guys always. We need to believe we're the good guys. After the 9-11 attacks, uh, journalist Fareed Zakaria wrote an essay in Newsweek entitled, Why Do They Hate Us? Some of you may remember this back in 2001. If you went into the grocery store, you saw the newspaper, the, the Newsweek magazine on the checkout stand. Why do they hate us? And the essay explored the Muslim world's grievances against U.S. Middle East policies, and it was probably the first time on a national level that America stopped to consider that in the eyes of some people in our world, America is not always the good guys. The book of Malachi ends with this Old Testament cliffhanger. You shall distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be straw. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. Now we tend to reserve warnings like that for the most wicked people in our world. Surely, we don't see ourselves in this category of the wicked and evildoers. In fact, that's why we're here this morning, because we don't identify with the bad guys. We identify as the people of God. We're on God's side, right? That's why we're here this morning. But sometimes, in the biblical story, when you read through Scripture, sometimes the good guys become the bad guys. Sometimes the prey can become the predator. When John the Baptist comes on the scene in the passage we read in Matthew chapter 3, the historically oppressed had become the oppressor. He said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized of him, you brood of vipers, who has warned you of the wrath that is coming? These were his countrymen, his, his neighbors, fellow Israelites, Hebrews, Jews who externally were under the predatory powers of Rome. And yet he calls them vipers. Here's John the Baptist, the supreme figure of Advent, because as we discussed last week, Advent is the annunciation, the preparation that the Lord is coming. It is not pretending that Jesus Christ hasn't been born, but it is rather an expression of the church's solidarity today with the church that existed in the first century who is waiting and expecting the coming of the Messiah to be born, and we stand today on the brink of eternity expecting the return of the Lord. And John the Baptist, here he is as the supreme figure of Advent, preparing the world for the arrival of the Messiah 
all alone holding his position on the front line of this present evil age, declaring to everyone, repent, the wrath of God is coming. John is this weird character. He's all alone, utterly convinced of the mission that God has given him, and in the passage we read, he is wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and honey. And I'm sure there's a good way to prepare that. That is, sounds you know, appetizing, but on the surface, it doesn't sound yummy. He's a bizarre character, and even the most religious in Israel would have thought he was nuts. In the wilderness, dressed and looking like a madman, no doubt, his hair all messed up, unshaven, hadn't brushed his teeth. I don't even know if they brushed their teeth back then. But there he was all alone, holding his position on the front line of this evil age, announcing the coming of a kingdom. There he stood, John the Baptist, the supreme figure of Advent, announcing the coming of the Messiah on the brink of eternity. And why is he so utterly worked up in his heart towards his countrymen? Well, if you remember the biblical storyline, when God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, he told them, he gave them this specific command, you shall show hospitality to the stranger and do not mistreat or oppress him. For you were strangers in Egypt. But it wasn't long before they violated that command. They not only oppressed the stranger, but they oppressed each other, the widow and the poor, and the weak were trampled on. The historically oppressed became the oppressor. The prey became the predator. The good guys, at least externally, became the bad guys. So bad that in John's words, he calls them vipers. Now, I know in our world today, we want to love all animals, but vipers, you know, they bite and they, they're poisonous. It's not a compliment. He calls his own countrymen vipers, who most certainly did not see themselves that way. You can imagine how troubling or comforting, depending on who you were, Jesus' words were that from now on, the last will be first. The kingdom of God upsets this world order that existed and still exists, but will one day be displaced by an order from heaven, a world order from heaven. That those who are last now, one day will be the first. But those right now who are the first, who enjoy power, an advantage will be on the bottom of the pile. That that day is coming, and it was radical, you can imagine, for the people in the first century to hear this prophet in the wilderness calling them evil, calling them wicked, saying you're the bad guys. At least that was the way they would have interpreted it. And all of this is important for Advent because John, as I mentioned, he's the forerunner of Christ, proclaiming, here's what he's proclaiming, that not everyone who thinks they're righteous actually is. Not everyone who thinks they're the good guys are the good guys. And that day is coming, burning like an oven, in which God will judge those whose hearts are arrogant and proud. Now John's purpose wasn't so much to redraw the lines of who is good and who is bad. There's something else he's really trying to get at. He's trying to demonstrate 
that everyone needs to repent. Even those that see themselves as the good guys. And so his message for everyone in the crowd, because of course his words most pointedly were aimed at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the humble poor Israelite who was trying to be as pious as they could, they weren't really the target of John's words, but John doesn't make that distinction. In fact, in some ways, his words remove the distinction between good and bad. And he utters these words, Repent, for the kingdom of God is coming. And Paul the Apostle picks up on this thought in his epistle to the Romans, which is really a reiteration of something Isaiah said. But in Romans 3.23, he says, There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is the point. That Advent is a message on the brink of eternity because it announces to this present age the wrath of God is coming on the world. And everyone needs to repent. Now puts, that puts the son's question to the father in the McCarthy, Cormac McCarthy's novel in a new light. Are we the good guys? Now sophisticated, as sophisticated North Americans, it's kind of impolite to talk about the wrath of God. We just don't talk about it a lot. It's, it's not polite. It's... We don't do that. And we can understand some people have overdone it, talking about hell and brimstone, hellfire and damnation. We get that too. We don't talk too much about the wrath of God, of course, until we hear of some horrific act committed by some perpetrator, and then suddenly we're glad to remember that God judges evil. But typically our response when something bad happens is not to take comfort in the fact that the judge is coming one day. We, we say things like, but why did it happen? For some reason, we see ourselves maybe as too cultured or too sophisticated to comfort ourselves with the knowledge that God promises to judge the wicked, but we should be. We should be comforted with that knowledge that God will one day judge the wicked, we should be comforted with the knowledge that God will one day trample the wicked under his feet like ashes, because that is certainly the promise of Scripture. In fact, the Old Testament ends on that note. It is a cliffhanger introducing what was to come in the gospel story, and John the Baptist picks right up on it. Now, maybe we don't talk too much about the wrath of God because we don't live under the daily oppression and injustice of murderous regimes like many people in the world. In fact, our first world circumstances have sort of given us a lens that we even understand God through. Our first world experience makes it so that we don't really resonate with this idea of God judging the wicked. But, you know, if we lived in a place where your village had been burned and your sisters had been violated and your father and brothers were disappeared, it would seem that would be the only comfort you have. That one day a holy and righteous and just God will take vengeance 
on the wicked. And that is not a dark and gloomy thing. That is a joyous thing. In fact, I dare say that people who live in that part of the world are able, especially Christians, are able to wake up every morning facing injustice and oppression and the threat of death and violence on a regular basis with the comfort and knowledge, and they comfort themselves, that God will exact justice. And he will destroy injustice and oppression. And it's not just people in the third world. It's people in our own nation too. People who are not so affluent. People who live under daily injustice in our country. Who can look forward to the day where vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That is a comforting reality of Advent. And those people rarely ask why when evil happens because they're under no illusions that evil exists in our world. They take incredible comfort in the knowledge that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. They sleep a little better knowing that the wicked will receive their wages with interest. What then is our appointed task as Christians? as we think about all of this. We are Christians living on the brink of eternity knowing that God may not return tomorrow, but he could. That Jesus Christ may not come back to judge the wicked, the living and the dead tomorrow, but he very well could. What is our task as we live on the brink of eternity? As we await the coming of our Lord, our trust needs to rest not in our goodness, not in the knowledge that we're the good guys or we're not the good guys, but rather our trust needs to rest in God who has mercy. Any notion of deserving or undeserving has really no place because the very definition of grace is favor shown to the undeserving. That's what makes it amazing grace is the recipients of that kind of favor don't deserve it. If it were favor shown to the deserving, it wouldn't be amazing, and it certainly wouldn't be grace. The test, then, of a true Christian, as we come into a season that talks a lot about peace to all, goodwill to all men, and we have these two things in tension, which is the wonderful cheer of the Advent season, with more and more lights and decoration and gift-giving, in the reality, the fact that we live in a world that is still often very dark, where injustice still exists, how ought we to live? How ought we to measure ourselves in this time of year when we're thinking about the coming of the Lord? It is not in degrees of goodness, but quite simply the love of Jesus Christ, his love for us and our love for him. That's what comes shining through in spite of everything. Because I have to admit, sometimes I wake up from day to day not knowing if I'm a good guy or a bad guy. Jerry Bridges said in his, um, one of his books, I think it's Transforming Grace, that on your worst day you're still a child of God and on your best day you don't deserve it. Which means the grace of Jesus Christ unites us to God because of God's love and mercy, not because I am daily earning it. We live in an age of increasing political polarization, and everyone seems to be utterly convinced they're right. And in our culture particularly, we've seemed to become terrible judges of who is and isn't a good person. 
But ultimately, that is not the task God has given us. The task God has given us is is not to decide who is and isn't a good person. Our appointed task is to fight evil wherever we see it. Not to divide the world up into good and bad people. The division, scripturally, is not so much between good and bad people, but between what St. Paul calls Adam and Christ, the old human being and the new human being. Because only in Christ is the threat of judgment lifted. Only in Jesus is the threat of judgment lifted. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ this morning? Do you identify with that old man, that old woman? Or are you walking and living into that identity as a new creation modeled on the very Son of God by grace? Are you in Adam? Are you in Christ? Not whether your daily victories and failures cause you to measure up, but do you identify with the old man, the old woman, or Jesus Christ? Only in Christ will the lion lie down with the lamb. I end this morning with these words, the latter part of Malachi. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father God, now we thank you, O God, that you have united us to yourself and your son Jesus by his grace. Father, we know that we have not earned this right standing with you. We celebrate, O God, that you are the giver of life and salvation and that your love has been poured out on us undeservedly, but we also hold very closely to our hearts the knowledge that you will come one day to judge all wickedness and evil. And our only hope, it is the hope that we live with every day, we go to bed with, we wake up with, is the knowledge that we are in Christ, we are hidden in Jesus and that we are part of your very family, adopted as sons and daughters by faith alone. Father, now let our hearts this Advent season as we approach Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, let it be held together in the tension and knowledge that one day you will return. It may be tomorrow, it may not be for a very long time, but let us, O God, watch and be ready. Let us wait with hopeful expectation and anticipation that... Lord, you will one day judge all people. And we will stand because we are found in Christ. We thank you for this, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.